You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here. Just wanted to wish you an early Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everybody out there. Thanks so much for making this a great year on the podcast. And we'll see you in 2016. On with the show. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Ken Davenport. You're listening to the Producer's Perspective podcast. And today, well, I'm thrilled today to have one of the best lyricists on the planet as my guest. Welcome, Lynn Ahrens. Wow. How can I How can I go on? <laughs> uh, Lynn is a Tony Award winning, Oscar nominated lyricist and book writer credits. Like, man, some of my favorite shows, including uh, way back my favorite years, one of my favorites. Uh, once in this island, of course, one of my most joyous nights at the theater uh, when I was in school here at NYU. I saw Ragtime, of course, where I first met Lynn because I was the associate company manager, Susical, Rocky, and a whole bunch of beautiful and venturesome work at Lincoln Center, including Man of No Importance, Dessa Rose, The Glorious Ones. And just last night, she and Stephen Flaherty were inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. And we're paying for it this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's just start at the very beginning. Where did you get the theater bug? 
You know, um, I, I, I can't really say there's, there was a specific moment. I didn't see theater as a kid. I didn't grow up uh, with playbills. I didn't grow up with show tunes uh, playing in my house. Um, I was exposed to a lot of um, concert uh, stuff through my parents and, and that sort of thing and reading and, you know, all that. But uh, we didn't go to the theater we, for some reason. And my guess is that they could not afford it um, even then. So when I came to New York, I was working in a number of different um, fields. Uh, I, I was for a while a, a, a jingle writer, for a while a copywriter, uh, for a while I was um, a television producer, and they all involved music and lyrics in some form. And somebody said to me, you know, you would enjoy writing something for musical theater. There's a workshop that you might enjoy going to. And that was the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, which Lehman Angle began years before. And so I thought, well, what the heck? And I, I just did it as a lark, really. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I wrote my first song with another songwriter in the in this room. And I thought, oh my God, this is sort of what I was born to do. It, it really was that kind of a moment. But it didn't come from seeing a lot of theater. It came from writing my first character song, basically. And that was the year that I met Stephen Flaherty. That was 1983. So, you know, I was... I was a late starter, in a way, but that's that's sort of how it came about. And was he the person that you wrote that first song with? No, I actually, uh, I started in the workshop in 1982. That was the first year, and so I sort of dated, you know, dated around the room with a lot of different composers. And Stephen was a self-contained entity. He wrote his own lyrics and his own music, and at the time was very shy, very, very, you know, withdrawn young man. And... Uh, we really had never exchanged any words at all. And in that first year, they give you assignments. And so we had one last assignment to do for the year, and I was sort of casting about for who I might write it with. And I was standing out on the sidewalk on West 57th Street, <laughs> where the workshop used to be held, and um, this young guy that I'd never said two words to went scuttling by me heading east, and he stopped about mid-block, and he turned around and shouted over his shoulder, Hey, Lynn, you want to do that song together? The last assignment. And I was so shocked and kind of flattered because I'd always thought of him as a wonderful lyricist and a wonderful songwriter, and I, I thought he doesn't need anybody, you know. But he invited me to work with him, and we did one song, and that was 32 years ago. Wow. <laughs> Those poor other people that didn't make it with you well, all before. <laughs> But, you know, it's that when that little bit of lightning strikes, it really was um, kind of palpable. I just, just he had such a feel for words because he was a lyricist. And, you know, and I had written a lot of music for Schoolhouse Rock and jingles and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm a good melodist. I'm a, I'm a, a good um, music person, even though, you know, I wouldn't ever dare to consider myself a theatrical composer. You know, I'm not trained in that way. But I have a good sense of music, and he has a good sense of words. So there's a, a meeting of the minds. Well, we'll get to Stephen in a second, yeah. but I want to go back to that first song you wrote. Uh -huh. Do you remember it? Um, yeah, well, let's see. The very first song was with, gosh, I, I'm trying to remember the composer's name that I did it with, and I'm not, I don't want to misspeak because I might name the wrong person. It was so long ago. But I remember the song because the assignment was a happy goodbye or a sad hello. And so I chose uh, Happy Goodbye, and it was basically uh, hosts, you know, owners of a home who had had a guest who had way overstayed their welcome, <laughs> and they were sort of saying, goodbye, you know, we will, we will miss the hair and the trains and the, you know, and all, all these sort of disgusting images, but it was really quite fun to write. 
and that was the first one. And I do also remember the first song I wrote with Stephen, um, which was that last assignment of that year. And it was um, two people singing together, but they're in different places. Um, you know, so stage left, stage right, and they're in different places. And we wrote two people placing personal ads in the Village Voice. <laughs> and. You talk about that lightning strike. Sounds like actually there should be a plaque on 57th yeah. Street where, <laughs> right, where you guys right, met. Right, I know. Uh, you talk about that lightning strike. Did you really know, like, when what, when you were writing together, like, oh, this is something special? What yes. What was it? That it you... was, um, well, that, that assignment for that Village Voice assignment, I, I wrote a set of words first. And, and now the way we work is very different than that. You know, sometimes I'll write a lyric first, sometimes he'll write a, a piece of music first, but usually we work together and it's more of a bits and pieces and, you know, a little ping-ponging back and forth. But I had given him a lyric and he put it up on the piano and he looked at it and then he put his hands on the keys and he just started making up a little tune on the spot, which he was uncomfortable doing because he comes from a very classically trained background and he's used to composing by himself in a serious way and, and I was saying well let's come on let's write a song you know I, I sort of came from a very improvisational background and he put his hands down and I he began to set the words exactly the way they should have been set that's the only way to describe it and I said aha you know it just was an aha kind of a feeling and that was 32 years ago is that what yes, you said 1983 yeah have you dated around since then? Have you ever written anything else with other people? Well, I did Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol with Alan Menken, right. which ran for 10 years at Madison Square Garden. So it was sort of like doing 10 shows with Alan Menken because every year we revised it. But that was, um, that's pretty much the only the only thing. I've, I've written a couple of songs here and there for a movie or something like that with, with some other composers. But basically, you know, um, it's all been Stephen. And he's done a couple of, he did one show with Gertrude Stein, <laughs> and uh, I knew he'd come running back to me, though. And um, he just did a, another show out in La Jolla that's all his music. I, not La Jolla, excuse me, um, San Diego. And um, it's it's a wonderful piece called In Your Arms, and he wrote all the music to that without me, except I wrote one little lyric for a theme song. But, um, yeah, basically we've been a partnership for all that time. Well, it's obviously one of the most successful collaborations in musical theater history now uh, but that's it goes more than just talent to keep a collaboration like this together obviously you two are incredibly talented and incredibly in tune if you'll excuse the pun mm -hmm. but what else do you need to have that kind of collaboration over so long um well when you begin I think you have to be I think everybody walks on eggs a little bit you know and, and if your collaborator writes something that you don't like uh, or doesn't strike you as as right. You have to find very delicate ways to express that, as opposed to that really stinks, you know. I'd, but but as you go on in a relationship, the longer on it goes, I think the more direct and and you don't need to waste time being all that polite. Although I think you always have to be kind um, and just explain why you feel that that might not be right. But you know, just cut to the chase and not dance around something that you're unhappy with. I don't know. I think. Uh, you just find your, we've, we've found our rhythms over the years. I mean, we've, we used to try and work. Stephen used to be a, a, a night person because he always worked nights. And I was always a morning person because I had a full-time job. So, you know, he'd be sleeping when I'd be ready to go. And I'd be falling asleep when he was ready to go. So we ended up working right in the middle of the day. 
And now we've just kind of figured it out. We're, we still, we start around 11 and, you know, if we're going to get together and we usually are, you know, have had enough of one another by about two o'clock, you know, but we have a good time and we, we drink coffee and we dish the dirt and, you know, sort of get all that out of our systems and then we settle down to work. So it's, it's become a, a comfortable and, um, you know, obviously pretty fruitful relationship. I, I don't know. I don't know how everybody else does it. I have no idea kindness, his sense of humor, you know, that's it. You mentioned about how you wrote character songs early, mm-hmm. that it was rooted in that. What's your process when you sit down, okay, I'm going to write a lyric for, I'm going to write Daddy's Son, or mm-hmm. uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to write Waiting for Life to begin, like, I'm going to write one of these songs. What's the first thing you do, even before you put pen to paper, fingers to keys? Um, well, usually, Stephen and I talk a lot um, about what the character is feeling, what they're thinking, what we're seeing on stage, how, how, you know, is she lonely and all by herself, or is she surrounded by people who don't hear what she's thinking? Is she upset? Is she exuberant? Is she frustrated? Sometimes a song is inspired by an actor, uh, as in the case of Your Daddy's Son, actually, which was sort of interesting because we were doing ragtime in Toronto, and it was one of the workshops that we did, and, and we had Audra McDonald. And uh, we had a big sing-through of all the material that we'd written to date. And Audra was just sitting there. And I'm thinking, why is Audra McDonald just sitting there? And we realized she didn't have a song to sing because the character in the novel has no nothing to say. It's a mute character. And she does this very, um, you know, dramatic act of burying her child in the ground. But she, we never hear from her. And I started to think, well, number one, we have to write a song from Audrey McDonald. We just have to. And number two, you know, why would that character do that thing? And I'm a woman. I was the woman on the team, which I often am. And uh, I thought, I, I can't identify with that character. And I, and I won't know why Cole House loves her so much until I understand why she did that thing, that terrible thing to her baby. And so that's how the song evolved. So it was partly getting into the character's head and partly being inspired to write something that's very difficult to sing because we had Audrey McDonald in the room, you know. So, um, it, but it comes, it's, it's usually trying to figure out, trying to sort of become the character in a strange way um, and just kind of think, what are they feeling? How would they express themselves? What kind of language do they use? That's, that's sort of where it begins for me. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you what's your favorite lyric of your own, but I'm going to phrase it in a different way, which is oh. one of my James Lipton questions oh, now. Oh. <laughs> I want you to imagine that uh, the Smithsonian calls you and says, even though you got in the Theater Hall of Fame last night, but now the Smithsonian's <laughs> calling, so it's really yes. important. And there, we have room for one of your songs in our institute. Just one. Oh. <laughs> I'd say you have the wrong number. <laughs> For somebody else. Which one would you pick? Oh my gosh, that's a really, really, really hard question. Because, you know, I, I'm very proud of some of my work for its, um, just for the, the beauty of the words on the page and, the, and to the ear. And then others, I think, express something very important to me that might not be my best lyric, but it, it expresses something important to me. And, um, and sometimes it's not even the whole lyric, it's just a little portion of a lyric. So that's a really almost impossible question. And <laughs> just tell the Smithsonian to call me in two years when I have had a chance to think about it. But um, I can tell you a few of my favorites. Um, I love the lines from Once on this Island, out of what we live and we believe, 
our lives become the stories that we weave. I love that little couplet because I feel it sort of sums up my life in a weird way, and it sort of sums up the, the nature of storytelling that we all, theater people all love to do. Um, so I love that couplet. I like, there's a little lyric from Lucky Stiff that I enjoy um, because it has all of these lovely little internal uh, rhymes, if you will, sounds. Um, and let me see if I can get it right. Uh, from now on, I'll have no one to ruin my day. A view won't be a view without you in my way. And it's all, ooh, ooh, eyes and o's and knees. I just love that little bit. And then, you know, there's, ba there's um, Back to Before from Ragtime, which I think is one of the best songs we've ever written. Um, I love that one a lot. Um, and that was a first draft lyric that I wrote one morning, complete from head to tail, and faxed it. In those days, we faxed over to Stephen at about 7 o'clock in the morning or something. And he said it, and not one word of it ever changed again. So uh, that was just one of those moments of, I think, for me, inspiration. Wow. A first draft like that. That's pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, let's flip it around now. Is there... Uh... A moment, because especially you're a wordsmith, you're a craftsman, so I imagine there's a perfectionist quality to lyricists in terms of the yeah. rhymes, etc. Yeah. Is there anything that you listen to now that you were like, ugh, that's it's not, it's not as good as it should be? What about your least favorite lyric of yours? Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Well, I, that, I can't answer that because I sort of, you know, not that they're all great and... You know, if you ask anybody else, they will certainly have their least favorites. But I just sort of am fond of them all. And, and you know, part of it is because I re will remember what I was doing at the time or how I felt in writing that particular lyric. I think, you know, there are moments when I'm, I'm sort of the lyrics are a little bit beast of burdenish. You know, they're kind of carrying a lot of exposition on their little shoulders. And, you know, I'm trying to get a lot of facts and information into a lyric. And those don't, don't tend to be the most beautiful of lyrics are the most wonderful, but you know that's sometimes the function of lyrics. They just have to push push the plot forward somewhere, and you know, and, and carry exposition. Do you have a favorite song of someone else's in the theater or out, where you just sit back and go, "Now that that's a beautiful song or a beautiful." Oh, so many! Oh my gosh, I, I did it actually. I was asked by Playgirl Online a while ago to write. I think I forget how many. I think it was ten of my favorite lyrics and why and you know just little very short little things and you know it's so hard to choose things and I had to leave so many things out um you know like there's a song called Memphis which was um uh written by Mark Cohen and um it's a pop song but I just love that song every time I hear it and it's partly the melody and it's it's almost like a little play in a way I love that song I love so much from Chorus Line that Ed Kleban wrote um uh Nothing is a brilliant brilliant song and so many of those are great and um oh my god i mean there's not they're just too many to say send in the clowns i don't know i could go on and on you know <laughs> just you'd have to shut me up you mentioned about being one of the often one of the only women on the team is that something that are we not being as inclusive as we should for female writers is there did you find it harder as a as a female writer coming up um Speaking only for myself, I never felt anything but welcomed and um, encouraged. And I had some great mentors, and uh, I never had that feeling. But that being said, I think that it is harder for women in all areas of theater. Um, and in fact, the Drama Guild just did a, a 
survey of um, American theaters just in light of that to see how many plays are produced by women, how many plays are produced by men, theater by theater by theater. And the results are fascinating. If anybody's interested, they, the last issue of the Dramatist's magazine, The Dramatist it's called, details the count, which is what this survey is called. And uh, yeah, women are much, much, much less likely to be produced than men uh, as playwrights, as musical theater writers. You can look in any theater pit, and you'll most likely see a guy. You'll, you can, you know, there there are less musicians, there are less music directors, there are less women all over the place in in the creative areas of of the business. And I think that will change. I can see it starting to change, and I can see it changing. Uh, for example, in the Dramatist Guild Fellows, which is a, a program that Stephen and I started at the Dramatist Guild for emerging writers, there every year the proportion of women gets higher, and now I think it's about fifty percent, which is great. And you know you have to make an effort to achieve that as well. So um, you know that's that's kind of the, where it is, I think. But speaking for, again for myself, I don't know why, but I you know I sort of held Betty Comden up as a, a shining example, and it just never occurred to me that anybody would say no, and nobody did, you know. So. So it's, if it's starting to change now, anything we can do to throw some gas on that fire to make yeah, it change a little hire faster? Yeah, women. Use, read their plays. Produce their plays. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it in mind, you know, as something that is a goal. And obviously, you know, it has you go for the best work, but also, you know, there is, there is something to be said, especially as a male producer, you know. You may not be as interested in subjects that women writers are interested in and have certain, you know, propensity not to choose those because they don't speak to you, but they may speak to women. And, you know, you have to, I think, just be aware of that um, when choosing projects. It's a fascinating suggestion to me, especially, of course, because I am a a male (laughs) producer. And, of course, we are attracted to issues that affect us personally. But we also, from a commercial standpoint, forget that women are the ones that buy the tickets. Hello. Yes, that's right. So it would make a lot of sense that we would want to produce plays that are about the issues that they deal with right. so that we can relate to their audience. Yeah. I also find it very odd that the majority of our critics are men. Yes, how about that? Mm-hmm. I'll say no more. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I run a website called didhelikeit.com, yeah. which is what the New York Times critic thinks of, of shows. And often I wonder, and I think we own the domain, didshelikeit.com, in case they ever make that change. But many people have said, oh, no, it will be a, it will be a guy Forever. Yeah, think about that. Really, it's it's upsetting to be honest with you, and it's unfair because there is an inherent uh, prejudice or bias or interest. You know, any of those words would apply, um, and you don't think about it. You know, you just don't think about it. But if you do think about it for a minute, you might might want to deal with it. Oh, now I'm worried. I haven't See? had enough females on this podcast, so I. <laughs> I'm going to go what back and check my, I? yeah, I'm going to check my ratio. Yeah. We'll yeah. make sure we yeah. even that up All if right. it's not even Good. already. Okay, let's get off that topic a bit. <laughs> um, look, you've had an incredible commercial success, um, but as I mentioned, you've produced these number of these beautiful musicals and have gone to Lincoln Center with them. Um, why? It would seem like, listen, I if you told me I you wanted to write podcast the musical or business card the musical, I'd produce it. <laughs> But here you take these properties, which are very beautiful, and and you produce them there. Why that choice? Well, um, Lincoln Center, because uh, mainly because our very first off-Broadway show is at Playwrights Horizons when Andre Bishop 
and Ira Weitzman were still there. And, you know, they gave us our first opportunity um, at Playwrights. And then Andre moved over to Lincoln Center with Ira. And, you know, we, they were like our, our parents or something. You know, we, we just sort of gravitated over there and we would bring them ideas that we thought they might like. You know, I mean, they did actually, um, they did Lucky Stiff first at Playwrights. Then they did Once on this Island, which moved to Broadway, of course. And then they came to, went to Lincoln Center, and that's where they did My Favorite Year, which was the first musical done at Lincoln Center with the new pit and, you know, the whole the whole new renovation of, of the Beaumont. Um, and then thereafter, they made it very clear that we were very welcome to bring shows there. And when you have a facility and an artistic directorship such as that and they welcome you, you know, that's where you go. You know, and they've, they've been wonderful to us. We did um, Dessa Rose there, my favorite year, of course, Man of No Importance, the Glorious Ones. And each of those was uh, an adventurous and not immediately uh, commercial show, you know. And they were willing to take the chance on each of them. So that was, that was quite exciting. What's the difference between working in the commercial environment and the nonprofit for you? Um, well, there's always the... the Commercial is obviously a lot higher pressure, and there are a lot more people whose voices have to be heard, and, and you know, in one way or another, there are investors, there are co-producers, um, you know, there's there's the critic critical reaction at the end of the line, which, you know, can make or break the show and, and lose a lot of people a lot of money, and, you know, that's scary. It's much scarier. Uh, you feel much more protected and sheltered and um, loved, really, at, at a not-for-profit, I think. Um, at least I do. And, um, you know, we just did a show at the Kennedy Center called Little Dancer with Susan Stroman. And it was one of the most, honestly, I think one of the best shows we've written and one of the most extraordinary productions we've ever had. And nobody said a word to us except, oh, my God, it's so wonderful. You know, we never, it was just the most joyous and free-flowing experience. And um, we always felt that way at Lincoln Center, too. At Lincoln Center, um, Andre Bishop would occasionally see a run-through or something, and then he would say one or two sentences, and they would be so acute and so... Um, you know, so clear about his thoughts and what he thought we needed to do. And uh, in fact, one of his phrases I hold dear, which is, well, Lynn, it's just wonderful, but it's like a pudding with too many raisins. And I, <laughs> I just have that in my head. And I sort of think about that when, you know, we have too, too many songs or whatever, you know. But um, I think that's really the main difference. One is very high stress, high pressure, lots of notes, lots of um, kind of end result thinking going on. And the other one is much more nurturing and um, much more about your creative process and what it is that you would like to say. Speaking of ideas like podcast, the musical or business card, the musical for you, what, what attracts you to an idea and says, Oh, this, this can be a musical. And do you, do you come up with ideas more than Steven? Does Steven come up? Where do those come from? They, I would say that I do Generally, I mean, you know, sometimes a producer will come to us with an idea, but most of the time I'm out there browsing the bookstores or <laughs> when there were bookstores or, you know, I, I read a ton and I, um, you know, but we both come up with ideas. It's just for some reason um, they seem to have been found by me for one reason or another. But, you know, that we, we never do anything unless we both think it's a fabulous idea. Um, I sometimes am a bit of a... A, a, a Chinese water torture, you know, like Dessa Rose, for instance, it took almost 10 years to get him to feel ready to write that show. <laughs> but, 
But um, I, you know, I knew I loved it, and, and you know, we really wanted to do that one eventually together, but it took a while to convince him. And what is that thing that you look for that says, that screams out, oh, this, this can be a musical, this yeah. should be a musical? Um, I think it's great characters, great juicy, emotional characters, and a wonderful story, and something where all the blanks are not filled in. Um, you know, like with Ragtime, for instance, um, it's, it's a dense novel. It's a big, fat, juicy, dense novel. But yet, it is very cool, and there's no emotion, really. Uh, it's, it's in between the lines, uh, but it's not written out. And so we thought, oh, songs can go in here and flesh this out in a way. And Dr. O, um, uh, agreed with that eventually. He, he, he understood why the songs fitted in. It was very thrilled with the, with the whole thing. I miss him actually. His birthday's coming up. I miss him. Yeah. You've worked with a lot of different producers on your shows from, yes. of course, the famed or infamous Garth Trebinsky at Live End when, when I first met you, to Barry Weisler, to uh, big corporations and small mom and pop shops. Yes. What type of producer do you like to work with without, of course, naming names unless you'd want to? Um, what are the characteristics that go into a producer that uh, you I would say with? I would say artistic passion. That is the number one for me. If I know that somebody just cares so much about this project that they will kill to do it and, and it's their baby and they put their heart and their love into it, they're for me. And, you know, honestly, we have not had, I, I, I honestly can say this, we have not had a single producer that we hated or anything. You know, I mean, we've, we've loved a lot of them. I loved Garth. I, you know, I saw him not too long ago. And he's um, back in the game, I hear. He's, he's getting back in the game. And we had a, a bit of a reunion with him. Um, they're, 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 I have a fond spot for, for every one of them, even, even on the worst of experiences. You could say, well, they, they really screwed that one up, but boy, did they have passion. <laughs> you know, we, you just sort of go forward. You know, at a certain point, you take your, you know, project, your love, this project that you've worked on for two or three or four or more years, whatever it's been, and you offer it up and to somebody and, and hope that they will nurture it. And so that's, I think, what I would look for always in somebody is that they just loved what I wrote and, you know, wanted it to, you know, keep its integrity and, and do whatever they could for it. You know, I did a infographic a long time ago that showed that the majority of Broadway shows and musicals especially are adaptations of other source material. And certainly you've adapted a lot of things, including Ragtime and Rocky and uh, movies, books, yeah. stories. Yeah. How do you go about that process? I've read some writers say, oh, I read the book or watch the movie once and that's it. I put it away and I just create my own thing. Or others say I study every single word. I try to get those words in. Do you have a specific rule or process about how you adapt? No, I don't. I, I can't say that I do. I mean, interestingly, Little Dancer is an original and it was inspired by a sculpture that um, inspired me, and I thought there's a story in this young girl who has posed once upon a time for Degas. Who was she? We all know the sculpture, we all know Degas, but we don't know this young girl, and that became the story. And that was such an interesting and difficult thing to do because there's no structure. You have to create a story. You have to do some historical research and and you know try and figure out what the story was. And that was really wonderful. Um, you know, challenge for me. But when I adapt something, and most of our shows, if not all of them, besides that 
have been adaptations. Really, you know, there's a there's what what I first respond to is the language. Let's say it's a novel. Um, there's an island where rivers run deep, where the sea sparkling in the sun earns it the name Jewel of the Antilles. That's the first little bit of writing in the novel that we adapted, and that inspired me. And I thought, oh, I see the island. I see. I mean, it just the waves started, you know, racing toward me. It was it was amazing and. There were certain bits of language in that book that I wanted to retain, but basically we, re- we threw the story out the window there. I do. I think I am one of those people who reads it once or watches the movie once and then goes my own way. Um, on Ragtime, we referred, I referred anyway, a lot back to the novel because there were little clues in it to, to things, like there's a, little, a couple of lines about this wealthy neighborhood where the maids arrive and uh, you know, and mother is watching these women, and she suddenly, because she has taken this um, this African American child into her care, she suddenly looks at the hired help in a different way at that moment. And I, it, it inspired a lyric: "Each day the maids trudge up the hill, the hired help arrives. I never stop to uh, think they might have lives beyond our lives." And you know, I found that in the novel, but it wasn't written there. I just found that moment. So you know. It, it, the, the source material can be very inspiring for words or for characterizations. It can be, um, and it can also be um, harmful because you don't want to recreate anything slavishly onto the stage. I think that's why a lot of the um, shows that adapt movies, for instance, they just put the scenes up as they are in the movie and, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's stage worthy, you know, and you have to sort of free your mind of that a bit. We're doing that now on Anastasia. You know, we're we're writing that, and and we're trying not to, you know, be slavish to that movie, but we're trying to make it something of, of its own for the stage. I want to go back to the adaptation question yeah. real quick, because we talk, of course, a lot about lyrics, but you're a book writer as well. Mm-hmm. What's the process for you as a book writer when you decide you want to adapt something? Are you an outline person? Do you just start writing? I'm a I'm a first I'm the, I'm a beginning, middle, and end person. Meaning, <laughs> I, I you know structure for me. I try to find the the key structural points. That's where I usually start. Like, well, how is it going to open? How's how's Act One going to end? In three act structure, then how is Act Two going to end? What is the big old crisis in Act Two? And then Act Three, which is technically the end of the second act of the thing how are all the ends tied up and and if you have those moments you can kind of plot out a story pretty easily um i use i use three act structure that's what i do and you know it's funny nobody thinks of me as a book writer but i've written book to seven musicals (laughs) seven of ours i think it's seven maybe it's six i forget but anyway it's somewhere up there and um and yet Nobody thinks of me as a book writer, and I think that's because I do a good job at it, and I'm sort of invisible, and they think of me as a lyricist. But um, most of the shows that I've written before, I'm pretty proud of the structure. I think Once on this Island is perfect structure. Um, I think, you know, Little Dancer is pretty perfect structurally. Um, I'm a better lyricist than I am a dialogue writer, uh, but I'm getting better at dialogue. I'm starting to enjoy it more. I used to write a, a dialogue scene, and then I would say, "No, no, I have to write a song. I can't. I can't stand reading the dialogue. I'll just musicalize it. <laughs> I'll turn it into lyrics." But I don't do that so much anymore. So. Advice for young writers out there just starting today that don't meet Stephen Flaherty in their BMI workshop on the first, on uh, the first year. Yes. Well, just um, meet as many people who have your common interests as you possibly can. Join workshops. Um, find actor friends who can help you present your work. 
see as much theater as you can, even if it means standing room or, you know, just get into the theaters and see stuff and learn from stuff, listen to show albums, try to get, um, oh, join the Dramatist Guild. That would almost be my number one. Um, join the Dramatist Guild because there's so much information to be had from their magazines and on the website. Uh, they have seminars, they have a fellows program, they have all sorts of resource information, um, legal information, everything for beginning writers. It's a wonderful place for them to start, and it is, it, it's a fellowship of writers. It, it's, uh, you know, it, it gives you a sense that you belong somewhere and that you have places to turn, and uh, that's, that would be my number one. But then just get out there and meet people and you know, tell them you want to write and make opportunities for yourself. Okay, our last question. It's another one of my James Lipton questions, so get ready Love for this. it. Love this. best interviewer. God. So I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to see you and says, Lynn, you have written such incredible lyrics and book. Your contributions to the American Musical Theater are magnificent. You're now in the Theater Hall of Fame, but that's nothing like the honor I'm going to bestow on you. I'm going to grant you one wish. Just one, though, to change whatever you want about Broadway that drives you absolutely insane. What's the one thing that keeps you up at night that makes you mad? What I love about you is you're so joyous. You obviously love what you do so much. So I want to know what really gets under your skin and makes you mad about this industry. What would you wish that the genie could change? I wish that we had 10 influential newspapers in New York and 10 totally different opinions, each one extremely powerful, uh, that could be used to promote a show. Because to have a show rise and fall on the opinion of one person, and that one person seems to have a forever tenure, isn't fair. That's what my wish would be. Give us 10 powerful newspapers and 10 brilliant critics and let them duke it out for the, you know, for the hearts and minds of the public as opposed to one person who stays forever. <laughs> there you have it. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Thank you so much for spending this time Thank with us. You. And congratulations on the Hall of Fame and, of course, Thanks. all the other honors. Good luck with Little Dancer and Anastasia. Thanks. And Whatever else is coming next, just keep writing. This is so fun because I knew you when, and look at you now. It's ah. just great. I love it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you on the next one. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.